श्रीमद् भगवत गीता चैप्टर वन वर्स ट्वेंटी वन वी हैव सीन सो फार द प्रिडकमेंट ऑफ द वन हु फाइंड्स हिमसेल्फ hopelessly caged against the truth we have seen the anxiety and the nervousness of duryodhan in the first half of the first chapter in spite of having a larger army and more experienced fighters duryodhan still is in an internal turmoil numbers suggest to him that all is well with his side yet those numbers he can sense are just a loose mass there is no center to keep those numbers together and that's what is making him almost delirious he approaches uh, drone and it is very strange starts uh, counting to him the names of the warriors on the pandav side as if drone does not know and having told drone of the warriors and the strength on the pandav side he tells him the pandavs are well nigh sufficient in terms of strength their force is paryapt sufficient and my side in spite of uh, having fighters like you and the 100 brothers and the invincible bhishma we are still insufficient it's as if in a moment of epiphany reality has struck duryodhan he sees that he has lost out on the one central thing that enables you to fight any war in life he has missed out on krishna even though he always had the opportunity to have him in terms of uh, relationship formal relationship 
Krishna and Duryodhan are almost as near as are Krishna and Arjun. Almost. In terms of access to, Duryodhan was never unfortunate or deprived. But he never realized that one central thing that's important in life. Therefore, he never knew what to choose. Therefore, he was rather elated when he got Krishna's army rather than Krishna himself. And even more so when he learnt that Krishna is not going to pick up weapons during the war. He didn't realize the value of consciousness compared to the value of material. When it came to choosing between the material that could be had from Krishna and the guidance that could be had from Krishna, he opted for the material. You get it? And that's the central mistake each of us makes. Krishna says elsewhere in the Gita, you can have either me or my Maya. These are the only two options that you have. Hmm? There is no third thing to have. In fact, there is not even a second thing to have. Because even the Maya that you rush after is mine. And the more you will get entangled, embroiled there, the more you will be forced to remember me. After all, it's my Maya. But nevertheless, still, most people opt for Maya. So did Duryodhan. And just before the war is to begin, Duryodhan seems to have realized that he has made an irreversible blunder. So we see all kinds of scattered and loose statements from him, all denoting a realization of weakness. Hmm? Then we come to Arjun. Another case study. What does Duryodhan stand for? Duryodhan stands for someone who has made repeatedly such bad judgments in life that now it has become practically impossible for him to be redeemed. That's who Duryodhan stands for. Huh? That's one extreme of consciousness. 
a type of consciousness that continuously denies and defies truth all its life and find itself finally cornered into a spot from where it cannot recover even if it has just seen the truth in a moment even if it has just realized that it has been making blunders yet the weight of all the misjudgments in the past is so heavy that it is now just impossible or too late to recover or make amends that's who duryodhan stands for and it's a it's a very tragic situation you know just when you are at the end of your life and if duryodhan can see this much that his forces are insufficient he can also probably see that all those including him who are arranged against krishna's side are very near their end right if duryodhan can see that in spite of having an army that's almost 50% larger than the army of the pandavas he is still insufficient and incapable if he can see that obviously he can see the clear conclusion as well and the conclusion is that all of you are going to be finished how will it feel to us when we have lived through several precious decades of life to realize that it's too late that realization will be so painful let's wish that we never realize at all then let's wish that we die in our ignorance without ever having had the realization that duryodhan is having in the first chapter you have invested all your time energy money everything in your existence into a particular center into a particular kind of life and then in the evening of life you realize that you have just wasted it all please experience it today before that experience comes too late if you experience that when you are 60 or 70 or 80 won't it be too late so let's prelive that experience let's put imagination to some useful service imagine how would it feel you are 70 and then you realize that you have totally wasted life how would it be very tragic no a chill runs down the spine almost as if you have seen a ghost that kind of scare and that's what duryodhan is going through even before the war has begun he has seen that he has lost not only the war but his entire life in a sense he has seen that he is already dead 
worse than that he has seen that he never lived at all that's the nature of reality you know often it shows up in very unexpected moments moments of significance moments of great pressure and challenge have this characteristic what you have been trying to hide to yourself just gets revealed in that moment because that moment is extremely significant because the pressure of that moment just shatters your pretense the fact of that moment the heaviness of that fact your pretense gets collapsed under it it breaks down and then you have no option but to confront the reality as it is and for duryodhan the reality is quite gory hmm? then we come to arjun let's see how arjun is feeling and arjun is the other end of consciousness where does arjun stand duryodhan stands in an almost hopeless state the state is of <coughs> near hopelessness we cannot say perfect hopelessness why why not perfect hopelessness because the war has yet not begun duryodhan can still choose to rush to krishna's side and say i can see that i have been erring i admit my mistakes i realize i have been operating from just the wrong center of greed covetousness envy i see that and i surrender duryodhan can say that right but duryodhan won't say that so i'm saying duryodhan is a state of near helplessness the option to correct yourself is always available right and that's the beauty about life it involves choice you always have the choice to begin anew irrespective of how badly mistaken you have been in your past irrespective of how misplaced and blunderous your choices in the past have been you can still choose to disown your previous self and start afresh that's the beauty about life that's the thing with consciousness huh consciousness is simply choice but duryodhan won't exercise the right choice though the option is there so we said his is a near ended state he is finished off nearly huh? that 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 1% choice is still available though he won't use it then you come to arjun and arjun is close to perfection perfection in the form of krishna but nearly <coughs> but nearly he is still maintaining a distance duryodhan is nearly finished and arjun is nearly saved yet even when it comes to arjun a distance remains from perfection 
a gap remains arjun is not yet fully surrendered arjun is maintaining his personal self that comes from both biology and society and here on we'll hear arguments coming from those centers from arjun from the social center and from the biological center the biological center will obviously talk of feelings of attachment relationships of blood and the social center will talk of all the prevalent social customs and beliefs that arjun is not uh, feeling courageous enough or clear enough to violate hmm? so let's just listen to what arjun says and does arjun says krishna please take my chariot to a place between the two armies so that i may see those who stand here for war <coughs> take me to a place between the two armies i want to see everybody who is assembled here for war i must know the ones i am going to fight so that reflects arjun's condition on one hand he is with krishna he does not say i'll go there on my own krishna you stay here so he wants to maintain his company with krishna he says you remain here but remaining with you i also want to see the ones i am going to fight obviously i have a deep relationship with you i am not abandoning you but i also don't want to immediately give up on the ones who have come here to fight i want to have a look at them as well so arjun is with krishna but not perfectly with krishna he still has other interests and those other interests show up in the very first utterance of arjun in the bhagavad gita he says take me to a place between the two armies i want to see what is going on right but then is that really something to arjun's discredit not really because the others are all welded to their positions nobody else is saying i want to observe both the armies arjun alone says i want to observe both the armies the others are all welded to their positions and their positions do not include krishna arjun is the only one who is with krishna but also says i want to see the other world my eyes are still on the world my eyes are not perfectly with krishna right that's arjun's situation krishna is with arjun and yet arjun's mind is feeling pulled towards 
his worldly affiliations. What do we credit him for? We credit him for being with Krishna and not abandoning Krishna. And in this, we get a clue as to how to operate when the world starts meaning too much to you. Go wherever you want to because that has become your situation. You find yourself unable to resist the pull of the world. Just as Arjun is saying, please take me near to the opposing army. Please take me to the center so that I can watch both the armies. You too are feeling a very strong pull to go near to the world. Fine, go. But the trick is to take Krishna along. Arjun would have totally lost it. The Gita would have never happened. Had Arjun said, uh, Krishna, would you mind waiting here for a while? I have some sightseeing to do. After all, they are my relatives. I want to have a quick word with them before I kill them down. You please wait here. Arjun might have as well said that, right? Even if you find that you have to proceed towards something quite ignoble, take Krishna with yourself wherever you are going. And you will find a Gita coming your way to save you. Because if you are already in a great position, you do not need the Gita. Gita is needed when you are in trouble. It's another matter that we are always in trouble. So we always need the Gita. But don't make the mistake of abandoning Krishna when you are entering a place that is likely to swallow you up. Don't do that. On the other hand, our karmakand runs totally the opposite way. Suppose you keep a small picture of, of your favorite deity in your pocket in general. You will find that when you are going to enter some kind of mischief, you will keep that picture aside. You will say you keep it here. Because right now I know I am going to do something quite mean. So I cannot keep this picture and do that kind of thing. So I am keeping this here. And then I will proceed and do all that. No. The, oppose, the approach has to be opposite. If you find yourself incapable of stopping in the matter of mischief, do whatever you feel like, but take Krishna along with you. Do not keep the idols and the pictures only in some specified prayer room. Keep them where you are most likely 
to be your beastly self. That's where they should be. Because that's where, that's when you need support. That's when you need a Krishna to remind you of the truth. Instead, we confine godliness to some God-forsaken sacred spot so that godliness does not come to trouble or obstruct when we are pursuing our daily fallen kind of agendas. We do that or not? So fine, Arjun says, I want to look at both the armies. You take me there, Krishna. You take me there. Even if I am going to a place that's likely to consume me, I'll ask Krishna to take me there. You take me there. I might be committing a mistake, but if I'm asking you to take me there, I'm sure you will save me as well. I might have made a great mistake, but I have not made the final mistake. The final mistake is the one that <coughs> Duryodhan has made. And that final mistake is to abandon Krishna. Arjun is probably making a mistake in being attached, in being oblivious of dharma. But that one mistake that will totally devastate you, he is not prepared to make that one. Huh? So, fine, take me there. And he says, I wish to observe those who are assembled here for the war. Those who want to please the evil Duryodhan by taking his side. Who are they? So, having been requested this way by Arjun, Rishikesh Krishna drove the chariot to a place between the two armies facing Bhishma Drone and all the other mighty warriors and said, Behold, look, Arjun, here are all the Kurus gathered. And then what does Arjun see? Parth sees there stationed the armies, the two armies, the grandfathers, the fathers-in-law, uncles, brothers, cousins, his own sons, the sons of the Kurus, also the grandsons, the various friends, teachers and other associates. All he sees is relationships, relationships, past, affiliations, associations, attachments. Hmm? They are already there in a subtle form within him before he says that he wants to be driven to the center. Else why would he first of all want to come to the center? Arjun is no novice. He has fought so many wars. And it is uncharacteristic of a fighter to say that he wants to go to the center just when the fight is to begin. 
Arjun has never done that before. If Arjun is found doing that here, the reason is obvious. The attachment is already there in him even before the war begins. Even before he sees them physically, even before he looks at their forms and is reminded of the memories, even before the, the visible nostalgia captures him. The subtle attachment is still there and it is that subtle thing that has first of all forced him to come to the center. Hmm? Then Arjun, the son of Kunti, looking at all his kinsmen, spoke full of sorrow. Krishna, seeing these my relatives <coughs> gathered here eager to fight, my body is failing me. My limbs shiver and my mouth gets parched. My hair stands on end. My limbs are failing me, my mouth is parched, my body is shivering and my hair stands on end. Even this Gandiv that I am so proud of that never fails me seems to be slipping from my hand. Further my skin is burning. The symptoms that Arjun narrates here are all physical, gross. What is it that is actually shivering and burning? The mind is actually shivering and burning. Hmm? The mind is shivering, burning. One reason we can immediately see. The reason is physical. The reason of blood and the body. <coughs> As is narrated, grandfather, uncles, sons, sons of sons, all other kind of relatives and any number of friends and associates, people he has known in the past. There is a hardly a face on either side that Arjun does not already know of. And that's turning him uh, quite uh, uncertain, feeling very weak within. What's this going to happen? This one is unlike any war I have fought in the past. First of all, I never have had to face my relatives and even on the few occasions when I indeed had to face Duryodhan, etc. The war was never supposed to be final. I could defeat them and let them go. But here, first of all, entire range of relationships has converged. There is hardly a kingdom in entire Bharatvarsh that is not represented here on this battlefield. 
So first of all, practically the entire community has assembled here. Secondly, the war is going to be till the end. We are not going to take any prisoners here. People are going to be fatally defeated. The defeat is going to be final, mortal, not just mental. Nobody is going to be defeated and get out of here alive. To be defeated is to be killed. So, the same description continues. Keshav, I cannot even stand upright. The mind is quivering so much. I feel I'll fall. My mind is in a whirl. And I see adverse omens. Just as you were talking of negative energy and negative vibrations. Arjun says, I am seeing negative omens. Are the negative omens outside of Arjun? It's all in his? And when it's in your mind, then you start seeing it all over the place. Getting it? Hmm? This description of Arjun's condition, does it sound totally alien, totally inexperienced? Or have you been through this? Huh? Not always, not daily. But don't we know what it means to be in such a condition? It's a condition of tear. One is being pulled apart by opposing forces. So one is torn. Hmm? And when you are in that condition, you find yourself energyless, indecisive. As if you will be no more. You just want to avoid that situation. Usually when there is a situation of such deep tension, we escape away or we want to fall asleep, right? When inner stress is so much, we want to somehow escape that. And we'll come to Arjun's plea for escape very soon. So, neither can I stand up, nor do I want to fight. Also, I see bad omens. And I do not see any good in killing these my own people in battle. I do not desire anything. I do not want victory or empire or pleasure. I don't want any of these. Hmm? What is it? Dispassion showing up? Detachment showing up? <coughs> no. <coughs> this is not detachment or uh, dispassion. This is not even indecisiveness. Arjun is making a very clear decision. And the clear decision is in the favor of the body. Though he says that he is feeling indecisive. 
he is saying he feels weak but he is taking a very strong decision he says that he is shivering but he is quite firmly making up his mind to not to fight to run away do you see this discrepancy between what arjun is saying and what he is about to do he is saying i am feeling uncertain but inwardly he is becoming more and more certain that i don't have to be here i'm going and this certainty that is arising within him is the certainty from his body the body out of a long process of evolution is designed to not to kill its kin that's why most species don't eat their own <coughs> have you seen that and even among members of those species you often you won't often find blood relations assaulting each other the reason is simple the body wants to propagate the dna so if it has to kill it chooses to kill a distant dna if you kill your brother you are in terms of dna killing almost yourself you and your brother share same dna so if you kill your brother it's your own dna that will have a lower chance of proliferation do you get this so biologically we are designed programmed to be predisposed towards our family members that's the reason parents care so much for their offspring because the offspring is carrying their that's the reason when someone who does not want to produce a kid tells of her decision to her parents they say but you know your baby is after all your own if you will adopt a baby it won't be the same thing and if you question the parents why is an adopted baby not the same as my own baby they will not know the answer they will not know the answer because they have not studied evolutionary biology the answer is simple your baby does not carry your and the entire thing about reproduction is the furtherance of your own dna that's what the animal inside us wants my dna should continue my dna should continue so now you know why when you propose adoption as a substitute to reproduction people don't find that very appealing and they will not know you will ask them for some logic some argument they will not know you say you 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 adopt a little baby is it not the same as having your own they will not know they will not know because the animal inside lives in darkness about itself 
it lives in a very dark cave within where it cannot see even its own face so it does not know itself that's the reason we have feelings but we do not know where those feelings come from you want to have a baby somebody asks you why do you want to have a baby you will not know because the animal has no self knowledge the animal is not designed to know itself the animal can act but never know why it is acting the animal can feel but will never know why it feels thus this way same thing is happening here blood relationships blood relationships the body is militating against dharma the body says i am bigger than dharma i am higher than dharma getting it hmm? and after the body there is a lot more we are coming to that of what use is kingdom to us of what avail our pleasures and even life if these these the ones who are standing to fight if these for whose sake we desire that empire or pleasure or enjoyment for ourselves as they stand here in battle having renounced life and wealth all the ones that i see teachers uncles sons and also grandfathers maternal uncles fathers in law grandsons brothers in law besides other kinsmen of what use is kingdom or pleasures or wealth if it comes at the cost of those for whom we desire these things so the argument is when you want happiness you want happiness for those who are your relatives and your kinsmen so of what use is happiness if it is going to come by slaughtering your kinsmen huh? this again is a body centric argument arjun is placing pleasure as the highest thing one strives for and he says one strives for pleasure so that one can share pleasure with his relatives now this is a very lowly definition of pleasure but arjun is presenting it as the highest goal of life arjun says one wants riches wealth joys power for whose sake for the sake of the family when i say i want to become somebody why do i want to become somebody so that i can please those around me 
I go to the office and I earn money. Why? So that I may provide a better future to my kids. The little bird goes and picks up edible stuff from here and there. Why? So that I, it can bring that stuff, those grains, etc., to its nest and feed the babies. So Arjun is basically drawing an analogy from the animal kingdom. He says, whatever we do, we do it for the sake of the relatives. So of what use is the doing? If the doing happens by killing the relatives. Now the argument is fundamentally flawed. The highest pleasure is not biological. Joy is not about bringing happiness to your relatives. Joy is about bringing liberation to yourself. And that is something that Krishna would be teaching very laboriously in the course of the Gita. But right now Arjun is presenting his own personal philosophy. And it is good that he is exposing himself clearly to Krishna. That will enable Krishna to come up with a suitable response. You get the argument that Arjun is presenting? Arjun is saying, when I want pleasure, I want pleasure so that I share it with my friends, relatives, etc. So of what use will be pleasure if it comes by killing these same people? So I don't want that. It's such a convincing argument, you see. And any lesser mind than Krishna would have found it difficult to counter this argument. When I earn good things in life, I want to share them with my... I do it for their sake. So what use is any endeavor in life if it comes at the cost of the family and the relatives? Krishna obviously has heard it all so many times and he knows how it happens. He also knows how to end it. Hmm? So he will do that when it comes to that. Even though these were to kill me, O Madhusudan, I do not want to kill them. Not for the sake of the kingdom, not for the sake of sovereignty over several words, all words possible. Here he says three words. And, and how can it be for the sake of just this earth? Even if the kingdom of all three lokas, all the universes possible, were to be given to me, I would still not kill these people. Of what value is the kingship of this earth alone? I am not going to fight them. There is no way. Arjun is representing here the common body identified individual. And it is because Arjun is so relatable that the Bhagavad Gita is so precious. <coughs> How many of you today or at some point in life have found that it is your body and your blood, by blood I mean your blood relations, that it is your body and your blood that stands between you and your endeavor for the truth. How many of you have found it at some point or the other? That's the reason I say that you have to see 
that Arjun is a great exemplification of the situation of the common man. And that's the reason why the Bhagavad Gita could become so commonly acceptable. Because Arjun is each of us. Since Arjun represents each of us, therefore the Bhagavad Gita is useful to each of us. Do you see this? Hmm? So that's one thing that we learn about Arjun. Hmm? He is very body identified and very attached to his family and relationships. And that's what makes him very similar to us. In Arjun we'll now find many other things that are very similar to us. He has already spoken of how we share our bodily concerns with him. And now we will come to the conditioning of his mind. And see how several of the prejudices of this age, this time that we live in, are present in Arjun as well. So that makes Arjun in some sense our very identical kind of twin. Bodily we are same as Arjun. And now, soon, we are going to see that even mentally we are same as Arjun. In the sense that Arjun carries many of the same thoughts and beliefs and conditionings that we all do. It's as if we are looking in the mirror and finding Arjun, equal to us in body and equal to us in mind. So the body-centric argument continues still. What pleasure indeed could be ours? O Janardhan Krishna, from killing these sons of Dhritarashtra, we'll only earn sin if we slay them. In the in the language of the flesh, it is sin to kill your own blood. And in the language of consciousness, what is sin? Very good. It is sin to identify yourself with the flesh. And it is sin to look at the other as flesh, not as consciousness. Arjun is speaking the language of flesh. And in that language, your own flesh is the biggest value possible. When you are centered in the flesh, the highest value obviously will be to the flesh. Arjun is speaking that language. But when you are centered in consciousness, then it is not flesh you value, but consciousness. Then you will say, oh it is a great sin uh, to let Duryodhan win. Why? 
because he will totally corrupt the consciousness of the entire nation if somebody like duryodhan ascends to the throne it's not a small number of people who will be corrupted he will corrupt the minds of the entire country therefore it is a sin to not to fight it will be a great sin to give duryodhan a walk over do you see how your language changes when your center changes when you speak as the body then all arguments fly one way and when you speak as the consciousness then you find that the old arguments all appear so childish and invalid are we together till here hmm so arjun as if he has already made a point as if he has already proven something says therefore krishn huh in a manner of conclusion it's a one sided argument hmm? and from his own place he feels that he has made a point and the issue is done and dusted matter is sealed closed therefore within brackets it stands decided krishna hmm that we must not kill all these people who stand here see i have given you brilliant arguments and hence i think we can agree that the war is futile we have uh, seen the needlessness of this war as a matter of principle also i am telling you that i need some kind of sick leave <laughs> huh? so both principally and physically we must now withdraw <coughs> hence proved and krishna has not even started speaking he is just watching hmm and arjun will keep talking for the entire first chapter and also for the first 10 verses of the second chapter and then krishna will say what he has to and he'll find that he needs to say a lot arjun is a tough nut to crack hmm? so we can <clears throat> justifiably conclude krishna that we will not uh, kill the sons of dhritarashtra Uh, how can anybody gain happiness by slaying his uh, own relatives and then i'll take uh, the next two verses together though these with their understanding totally clouded by greed they see no evil in killing their families they see no sin in being hostile to their friends but aren't we superior krishna why should we act like duryodhan duryodhan sees no sin in killing his family members the pandavas duryodhan sees no sin in attacking his friends but aren't we aren't we better people krishna huh? aren't you better than duryodhan krishna huh? so so we should not emulate duryodhan 
let him do what he does let's not fall to his level huh? let's leave him alone let him become the king it's a small thing you know he is a baby we are we are grown up fellows if he wants to have the kingdom of entire india let him have that it's such a small thing we can just abstain from these things and walk away honorably so janardan we are the ones who clearly see the evil due to the decay of families we should turn away from this sin we should not partake in whatever is bound to happen now that he has talked of family something else comes up now we see the social side of arjun coming up and this is very important so far we had seen the physical the biological side of arjun now we see what kind of a social mind arjun is let's listen what he says he says if all these people here are killed we have come to the 40th verse if all the the people here who are all males if they are if they are killed then the family decays and if the family decays then all the religious rights of that family they too will die out and if that happens then dharma is no more because there is nobody conducting the religious rites and when dharma is no more then uh, adharm will overpower the entire family so you get here an idea of the social and religious orientation of arjun here and that's not merely arjuns that represents the prevailing social and religious dogmas of that time not only that time it is quite interesting how what arjun is saying is applicable squarely to our times as well because arjun's religious beliefs are exactly the beliefs of our age our times what is arjun saying arjun is saying that dharma equals ceremonies if the families decay then there will be nobody conducting the and if the ceremonies are not there then dharma is not there so dharma equals is that also not the view that the biggest part of population holds today as well that dharma means ceremonies do this do this and you are dharmic on that particular day do not cross that line close that room paint the wall wear some mark on your forehead in a particular month go and visit that particular shrine and if you do these things do do if you do these prescripted things then you are religious right so dharma is about doing certain prescribed things it's a particular sect of pre appointed actions that constitute dharma right 
that's the notion arjun is coming from and is that also on a prevalent notion today please tell me is that also not the prevalent notion today it is so we are arjun we are arjun both physically and mentally or socially look at the argument so many people will die who will perform the rites and the ceremonies and if there are no ceremonies adharma will loom large over the entire country and so krishna you see you are such a dharmic person you should not be telling me to fight because if i fight that will mean the victory of adharma do you see how ego acts it acts as the teacher of the teacher here arjun does not even know that he is trying to teach krishna arjun is telling krishna if you are telling me to fight then you are telling me to promote adharma and if you tell arjun in his face that you are trying to usurp krishna's position you are actually trying to become a teacher to krishna arjun will say i cannot even think of that i respect krishna so much will i ever try to teach krishna but that's what exactly you are doing here sir that's exactly what you are doing the ego takes itself to be the truth right nobody considers himself as a mere fallacy a shadow an apparition do we do that we take ourselves as real don't we so the ego thinks of itself as the truth and if the ego is the truth why will the truth accept any teacher the ego really cannot accept any teacher in some sense the teacher has to fool the ego to get himself to be heard the central belief of the ego is i am the truth through various means and tricks and methods the teacher needs to display to the ego that it is not the truth otherwise the ego has a deep and unquestionable belief i am the truth i am the truth though it will pretend to be humble on the surface right you ask the ego uh, you think you are the truth right and there can be no two truths therefore krishna is not the truth you are the truth standing in front of krishna and you cannot have two truths therefore krishna is not the truth and the ego will say god forbid i am such a humble ego how can i pretend to be bigger than krishna no 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 i am not saying krishna is not the truth but sir that's exactly reflecting in your thoughts and words and deeds look at what you are saying and doing it is very clear that you are taking yourself to be the truth so arjun is presenting his case this way to krishna (coughs) 
what do you think of arjun a character coming from the 10th or 15th century bc or is he someone sitting in the middle of us is there anything that arjun has said that has become outdated any argument that arjun is making huh, is very topical very relevant right if you are not told that the text is in sanskrit and you are not told that the setting is in an ancient battlefield you will immediately say oh this is happening right in middle of us that's the reason geeta is so important that's where its sacredness comes from that also gives us a definition of sacredness the sacred is not necessarily that which has been told of as sacred the sacred is not necessarily that which has been thought of as sacred the sacred is only that which liberates you in this moment that's the definition of sacredness that which liberates you today is sacred and only that is sacred if an ancient text is sacred then it must liberate you today and that's what the geeta does therefore geeta passes the test of sacredness not all the books that you call as shastra pass the test of sacredness they do nothing to liberate you today they should not even be called as shastras only a very small number of books today deserve to be called as scriptures and those scriptures must be respected unconditionally but only those scriptures not every old book in sanskrit can be held as respectable just because it is old and it is in sanskrit and it talks of religious matters no now now look at uh, arjun's mental disposition and when adharma rules prevails impiety rules the women of the family become corrupt krishna male attitude towards females is that a thing of the mahabharat era or do you find that today as well the women will become corrupt and what is meant by women becoming corrupt you know they'll start having sex here and there so corruption is to be measured on the yardstick of sex arjun does not say women become corrupt when they do not know the truth or women become corrupt when they cannot see through maya or women become corrupt when they become greedy and envious he does not say any of these things he says women become corrupt 
when they start having sex with someone other than their husband so what is the very definition of corruption not just biological but sexual not just bodily but confined to the sexual parts in the body that's the prevailing social morality and is that a morality that you find only then or is that something you find today as well very interestingly it's kurukshetra where these words are being uttered and it is in that region of the country even today that we find the greatest kind of misogyny where is kurukshetra that's also where such attitudes prevail even today women have to be kept pure what is purity about it's the purity is is not about uh, the mind purity is about the genitals the genitals have to be kept pure so the biggest allegation you can levy on someone is not that he is mad or insane or totally badly conditioned the biggest allegation is that you know he had sex somewhere does that happen not today does that happen or not if you want to destroy someone you need not prove that the fellow is unwise if you prove someone to be unwise people say fine unwise is okay but if you can prove that the fellow has been sleeping somewhere then you have destroyed him and if the fellow happens to be a woman then you have completely destroyed her by proving that she has slept with five or six men times have changed minds have not changed and that's the reason geeta is so useful because geeta represents the contemporary mind look at the impunity the unabashedness with which arjun is uttering these words to krishna to someone no lesser than krishna look at arjun's conviction he is saying the women will be all corrupted to krishna he is saying this think of how strong the social conditioning is he is uttering these words as if these are the truth as if krishna cannot object to these words now you also know who krishna is krishna is the destroyer of prevalent social conditioning arjun represents himself as the one who has a certain attitude towards women and krishna comes as the one who destroys all kinds of feeble attitudes towards women are you getting this what is the function of krishna in today's society to liberate it of all kinds of nonsensical attitudes that we have towards women krishna was doing that then and krishna will have to do that today as well the men folk all the men were having very poor attitudes towards women back in those times they continue to have equally bad attitudes towards women even today these words are so contemporary right 
Even today you can hear these things being said almost everywhere. The women of the family become corrupt. And then see how the argument proceeds. And once the women are corrupted, you know there is intermingling of castes. So one kind of attitude towards women very quickly followed by an attitude towards castes. And these two things go really intermeshed, you know. Purity of women and purity of caste. There can be no caste system without keeping the women pure. If, if there is intermarriage, therefore, among the castes, the caste system is gone. To survive the caste system, you have to keep the women pure. Especially the women of the so-called higher castes. The, the caste system or the or the Varna Vavastha, it was as it was prevalent then and more or less it's prevalent in the same way today as well. Kind of sanctions the men from higher castes to have sex or marriage with women from so-called lower castes. But what is absolutely forbidden is women from higher castes mingling with men from lower castes. No, no, no. That's a nightmare that the higher caste men cannot allow. My woman has gone to Ashudra. What hell? And that's what also is Arjun's problem he's saying. All the Kshatriyas will be gone. So our women, our property will be then, you know, going to all these ordinary people and having sex and then kids will be born and those kids will be no good. They'll be called Varnasankars. Now this is the problem that Krishna is facing. Chapter 1 of the Bhagavad Gita enunciates the problem statement. The rest of the chapters solve that problem. We keep quoting from all the chapters of the Gita without knowing why those solutions were offered in the first place. 17 chapters of the solution and one chapter of the do we first of all understand what the problem is? The problem is that Arjun is first of all body centered and second he has very regressive kind of social attitudes and the attitudes that he has show up towards two categories of population A. Women be lower castes. So who is Krishna then? Define Krishna. Someone who comes to liberate women and someone who comes to help the so-called lower castes. Someone who will tolerate neither misogyny nor casteism. That's who Krishna is. And that's what true spirituality is about. Instead we find misogyny and casteism prevailing in the name of religion. Look at the inversion, the complete inversion. Today if you have bad attitudes towards women and today if you have gross casteism, all that is in the name of religion. But here we have true religion in which Krishna is saying, all this is nonsense Arjun. 
what are these attitudes you have towards women come on grow up so true spirituality destroys misogyny true spirituality does not admit casteism and that's the reason why religious people will be bloodthirsty against spiritual people and that's the reason why when the true spirit of the gita will be revealed the revealer will have to face a lot of attacks do you understand what the gita is about arjun has a certain problem and krishna is solving that problem that problem is at two levels biological and social hmm i put it this way the problem is at two levels vritti and sanskriti the vritti is flawed because the vritti is sharirik bodily and the sanskriti is a big problem unfortunately that same sanskriti continues today as well and we are out to glorify that sanskriti are we not more and more we are hearing of culture 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 as if culture is religion as if culture is spirituality krishna here is a destroyer of sanskriti do you see this krishna is destroying not just vritti but also the prevailing sanskriti of those times do you see this never again must you allow someone to talk sanskriti to you arjun is trying to talk sanskrit to krishna and krishna is totally refusing never again say that the gita comes from sanskriti no gita has nothing to do with sanskriti in fact sanskriti is totally opposed to gita who is representing sanskriti here arjun or krishna arjun is representing sanskriti and krishna is telling him your sanskriti is of no value keep it aside do you see this is it too difficult to swallow i'm not adding anything on my own these are the verses now the diatribe continues and this mixing of castes indeed puts the family to hell so that's how a social mind thinks the definition of hell according to a social mind when you mix with someone from another caste then this is hell and when you go to spirituality i never get tired of quoting this one what do the upanishads name as hell arjun is saying mixing with person of another caste is hell and you go to niralamb upanishad what does that one say about hell that says mixing with a person of poor consciousness is hell 
that is the difference between sanskriti and spirituality that is the difference between culture and true spirituality arjun represents culture here arjun is saying mixing with some other caste is hell especially when a man mixes with a woman that is hell and when you go to the sage in niralambha upanishad he says mixing with a person of poor consciousness that is hell great difference great 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 difference do you understand this the person might belong to your caste you might have had a well arranged marriage with all the ceremonies as most of us do but still the person is of poor consciousness as are most people and that exactly is what is called hell it is not the other caste that is hell it is the level of consciousness that decides hell or heaven equally the upanishad says heaven is the company of people with great consciousness that alone is heaven caste etc or creed they do not matter do you get this huh another level of social conditioning so we have seen attitude towards women attitude towards castes now the third thing is coming through and you will be astounded how this third thing again is a replica of our times so when these castes mixes then the family goes to hell the family is destroyed also the souls and the spirits of the ancestors they fall because they are deprived of the offerings of rice ball and water do you understand that ceremony offering rice ball and water to the pratatma of jivatma or whatever of the ones who have died so the third level is of superstition physical social and superstition arjun cannot be someone from the previous centuries arjun has to be someone sitting right in middle of us right maybe he is sitting right in the middle of our mind possible casteist misogynist and now superstitious as well who is krishna someone who fights superstitions the arguments in favor of krishna are in favor of superstition are coming from the culturally conditioned arjun and arjun and krishna is now someone who will fight all these arguments then what nonsense is this ancestors are flying and the ancestors are hungry and thirsty so every few months you offer them rice and water and then they eat the rice and drink the water and the ancestors are then quenched what nonsense is this arjun what's going on but arjun is coming up with these arguments and he is taking these as very solid very indisputable great arguments what will happen to the souls of the ancestors if our great high caste women go and procreate with the lower caste men hmm? 
and our ancestors too, mind you, are very caste conscious. They will not accept rice and water from the wrong kinds of kids. The progeny has to be perfect. All the flying souls are very choosy. They will prefer to remain hungry and thirsty rather than accept uh, rice and uh, water from the progeny of a lower caste father. That's the argument that Arjun is making. That is the problem that Krishna will be solving in the entire Bhagavad Gita. Did we know that this is the problem that Krishna is solving? No. We used to think that Krishna is talking of some great principles, you know, nishkam karam, this, that. All that has to be talked of to solve just this little problem. All those 17 chapters exist just to solve this problem. This is Arjun's problem. Attachment, women, caste, superstition. This is the problem. I am asking you the nth time. Is this an ancient or outdated problem? It is very much a problem of the current time. Is it or is it not? That's why those who know realize that in this document lies the solution to a lot of problems of today. Probably to all the fundamental problems of today. You know, to top it, Because I am speaking more and more on the Gita now. Initially it was only in Hindi, now in English as well. People come and say that you see the caste system has to be valid. Why? Because it is mentioned in the Gita as well. <laughs> by mentioned by whom? Krishna or Arjun? But that is the argument that they present. And all these bogus ceremonies when I speak on them, they say, you are violating the Gita. Why? Because even in the Gita, it is said that these ceremonies are there. It is mentioned in the Gita. Mentioned alright. But mentioned in what sense? It is mentioned in the sense of foolishness. Not in the sense of prescription. Are you getting it? Gita in that sense is an extremely liberal and modern book. Gita is not orthodox. Gita is not conservative. Now this is one epithet that we don't usually associate with the Gita, right? Liberal. Gita is as liberal as a book can be. You have to be liberal if you are talking of liberation, no? How can there be liberation without liberty? So the Gita is liberal, not orthodox. In the, in the whole tradition of Hinduism, 
Vedant represents the liberal side. Vedant is the side that says caste is bogus. Men and women, the bodies don't matter. It is the consciousness that matters. Come on, don't talk of heaven and hell or souls and spirits. Vedant dismisses all these things. Vedant represents the the leading liberal side of Hinduism. And then there is the Puranic side and, and the Smritis and all that. They mostly represent the orthodox conservative side. So all the problems that you find today with Hinduism are mostly because Vedant, which is Upanishads, Gita, Brahma Sutra, they have not become mainstream. When they become mainstream, Hinduism becomes very, very liberal. Instead, what you find mainstream is stuff like Garur Puran. All the Puranic things have become mainstream. And Garur Puran and, 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 and books like that are continuously saying exactly what Arjun is saying here. They talk of the spirits and how the spirits move and what you have to give to the spirits to please them. That's exactly what Arjun is saying here. Maybe Arjun has come here after a reading of the Garud Puran. <laughs> and you see what Krishna does in the Gita. He dismisses all that Puranic stuff. So never talk of Ved and Puran in the same breath. I hate to say this, but they are poles apart. They are two different categories of literature. But because we have read neither the Veda nor the Purana, so we speak as if the Veda and Purana are the same thing. They are not. They are not. Most of the Puranic literature is incompatible with Vedant. Both cannot be true together. If Vedant is true, then most of the Puranic stuff has to be dismissed. Either dismissed or interpreted in the light of Vedant. In the Puranic uh, uh, <clears throat> compilation, there are indeed some beautiful stories. At a symbolic level. But even that symbolism can be revealed only in the light of Vedant. If you want to liberate Hinduism of its evils, you will have to come to Vedant. In fact, if you want to help the entire world, you will have to come to Vedant. Remember the definition of scripture. Folklore does not constitute scripture. Tradition does not constitute scripture. Stories from here and there and genealogy, that does not constitute scripture. Scripture is only when you are talking of your identity and its liberation. That's why the Bhagavad Gita qualifies to be called a scripture. And most other books that are called as scriptures are not scriptures. They are just old books. Just old books, not scriptures, not Shastra. Yes. Good evening, sir. Can you hear me? Sir, why is religion so obsessed with sex? In the sense that the normal kind of religious people who are socially respectable, all that they have in their mind regarding religion contains a lot of sexual connotations. So, for example, 
they'll keep saying that abstain from the other gender and practice celibacy instead of talking about core scriptures i find them talking of women don't do this to women don't look at women don't talk to women don't have relationship with women now i am not saying that men should have a lot of sexual relationships no that is not what i am saying what i am saying is that instead of focusing on scriptures and knowledge and the removal of one's own inner ignorance why are the social and moral and religious people talking so much of sex and women thank you see what has uh, happened is rajdeep social morality in some way has become conflated with religiosity if you ask a normal man he will be unable to tell the difference between social morality and religiosity and what you call as social morality has so much to do with sex everything to do with sex it is as if sexuality becomes the touchstone of morality not consciousness not knowledge not realization but sexuality so it becomes uh, a very probable kind of thing for a religious person to start thinking of sexuality as very important and then it starts hovering in your mind what does uh, true spirituality have to say about sex the answer might surprise you it has not much to do to say about sex it is popular culture and morality etc that wax eloquent on sex 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 he is a good man why because he doesn't have sex what kind of definition is this of a good man somebody is a bad man why oh you know there are some what kind of definition is this arjun is talking in a body centric way he says the war is not to be fought for the sake of keeping the women chaste and women so first of all the the women come in from nowhere so just as women circle in your mind you have someone else who faces the same situation think of arjun in the middle of the war only men are assembled there and animals and weapons arjun is start suddenly thinking of the women women and what will happen to the women obviously it's not that he is thinking of the women he is thinking of himself with respect to the women if i am not there what will my women do do you see the orientation the orientation is sexual and that's what happens to most religious people their orientation becomes sexual a normal man does not think of sex so much but a so called religious mind just keeps thinking of sex all the time and not his fault because he has been told that religiosity and sex are very intertwined so he is thinking of sex 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 and when he is thinking of sex he has to suppress sex a lot take lesson from this 
सिक्स हैज टू बिकम समथिंग स्मॉल समथिंग नॉट वेरी इंपॉर्टेंट नॉट अ ग्रेट मॉन्स्टर दैट यू आर फाइटिंग ऑल द टाइम जस्ट एज यू डू नॉट रिमेंबर वॉट यू टुक फॉर ब्रेकफस्ट यस्टरडे सेक्स इज समथिंग यू डू नॉट इवन यू शुड नॉट इवन रिमेंबर इफ इट इज इंस्टेड प्रेजेंट इन द माइंड ऑल द टाइम वॉट टू डू so sometimes uh, it happens that especially while reading scriptures uh, i think that uh, so normal times i am thinking about sex and women and then i think that okay let me start studying scriptures in this way the thoughts about women and sex will go away but while studying scripture i continuously keep a look whether the thoughts about women and sex have gone away or not but by continuously looking at those things no, no, this will, i this will end not up succeed rashid is a very very traditional route you are taking it's doomed to fail see when we began today in the afternoon we said prakriti ensnares you huh? uh traps you only because you do not understand realize it real you don't know it what you do not understand huh? you fall for in some way the ununderstood will torment you it will remain a bit of a knot unresolved because you are body identified therefore you remain distant from women right as a man you have to be separated from women that's a that's an identity you have accorded yourself i am a man that yes. puts you at a distance from women and that which you are distanced from you will never understand to know something you have to go close to it but what does sex mean or a sexual orientation mean it means you will be most of the times away from the object of your desire and even if you go close to it you will go close only with the purpose of exploitation and consumption you will never go close with a view to understand so common morality means that men will never understand women and women will never understand men because common morality keeps men away from women and women away from men right yes in common morality if you find men and women mingling too much you say oh loose character cheap fellow all the time he is hanging around with women are you getting this the problem do you understand if you are so separated from women how will you ever understand women and we said that in prakriti which you do not understand you will never be liberated from once i had said that you are attracted to so many women because you have never understood even one woman if you can understand even one woman you will be liberated from all women the ununderstood remains unresolved the further you keep yourself from something the more that thing remains an attractive enigma to you have you not heard men saying this way oh, nobody can understand the mind of a woman how can you ever understand her you never really went close to her whenever you went close your only purpose was sex 
अदरवाइज यू नेवर ट्राई टू एंटर हर माइंड बिकॉज यू नेवर ट्राई टू एंटर योर ओन माइंड आई दर यू अंडरस्टैंड नाई दर योर सेल्फ नॉट द वुमन सो यू फील अ वेरी एनिमलिस्टिक कंपल्शन टूवर्ड्स हर एंड नथिंग मोर just as you want to know of everything in the universe you must also know women and women must also know men and that cannot happen if your mediocre kind of morality keeps you at a distance from the other gender if you cannot sit across the table and talk to the other as a person as a being of consciousness how will you ever understand the other person but our sex laden society amplifies the sexual component in the personality so much that when someone from the other gender comes to you all you see is a huge genital you do not realize that sex is only a small part of the entire personality why can't you talk politics why can't you talk sociology why can't you talk economics or science or spirituality or sports or whatever we live in I mean, a how- in a distorted culture it does not allow us to remain remain at ease with the other gender sahaj sahaj that's a word that you do not have when it comes to women neither do women have it when it comes to men don't I mean, you experience a talk- certain unease recently there was this news item a very tragic one but look at this one fellow was to write his board exams and he was sent to an examination center where there were 500 girls and he got a heart attack and actually died that kind of unease think of it he was thinking of women all the time and so when he found so many of them around himself he just couldn't take it it's tragic obviously but look at the lesson just print it yes so, uh, uh, there is a coincidence i mean you won't believe regarding this only so one of my friend actually sent that uh, sent that news to me and said that uh, look this is your younger self <laughs> i mean i don't know how even my college friends uh, come to know about my this problem but <laughs> i mean that day i started thinking that uh, have i even progressed an inch in spirituality i mean uh, that day I, that was a serious day for me when i received that message you know my teacher he told me sadho sahaj samadhi bhali no pretense no convoluted methods no mumbo jumbo just being the essential self is sufficient sahaj Huh? Not excited. Not distracted. Not attracted. Not repulsed. 
a person has come in front of me i acknowledge the person is from another gender that's all i acknowledge and i can talk now that's fine half the population is women how can you avoid them or uh, remain in confusion about them at some point in your time you will enter a relationship what will become the quality of your life if you do not understand women the relationship will eat you up and unfortunately the other person also hmm? have easy relationships with both the genders do not make sex such a big thing if sex comes as an output of an easy relationship it is okay if it does not come your entire life that too is okay it is not a big thing you know what the big is the ease is the big thing the sahajata is the big thing if it just happens happens if it doesn't happen don't force it uh, i have other questions to ask but i won't ask because uh, i'm sweating right now i need to uh, take this <laughs> Uh, I mean, my earphones are sliding off. Uh, so, uh, thank you. I I will rewatch uh, this part again and again two three times. Uh, so, thank you so much. Pranam Acharya ji, uh, sir, my first question is that um, it was it has been asked by few of my friends that uh, Shrimad Bhagavad Gita, uh, Sri Krishna declared himself the God. Then what is the need to read other scriptures like Upanishads and Brahma Sutra, which has come from uh, the like humans like rishis and all? Uh, so this is my first question. and uh, second questions are related to this is like uh, like when we read shrimad bhagavad gita or any scripture so um, our families and all like they oppose a lot and they say that uh, this will not lead you anywhere and it is just a subjective thing i mean you can just read for your knowledge but it will not give you any solution uh, in the worldly matters and then if we oppose it they just say that uh, you need to perform the ceremony and rituals only then you can please god and uh, like shri krishna like uh, uh, if you decorate him and give him good like as a bhog you offer him good fruits and food and all only then he'll be pleased so how to deal with such kind of a mindset which very, with very close people like even my spouse or my in-laws with whom we uh, live every day and then if we just oppose them they just term me as i'm mannerless or i'm emotionless or i'm very straightforward or listening to you has corrupted my mind and i mean it is ruining my life and everybody around me so uh, just just don't get the answer to like deal with such kind of a people long winded what is the first part uh first part is sir uh, that himself uh, has declared uh, first of all first of all there is no concept of god in vedant vedant is existentialism vedant goes into who you are and the highest for vedant is not god or something the highest is truth god and truth are not the same thing 
God is someone you take as the creator of this universe. Huh? When you talk of God, you talk of this universe as real. Whereas in truth, the universe dissolves. All the gods dissolve in truth. Getting it? And even if one to pursue the argument that Krishna declares himself as the highest in Bhagavad Gita, the same can be said about the Vedas as well. They are called Aparushe, that they are not coming from any human source. So even they are coming from a so-called God. Equal, equal. No issues. If Gita is coming from a supernatural source, the same thing can be said about the Vedas also. That they too are coming from a supernatural source. Does somebody tell you who wrote the Vedas? It is said that they came from the mouth of Brahma. So even they are coming from God. Fine, equal. So just as you can read the Gita, you can also read Vedas. And Upanishads are part of Veda. Fine. Hmm? What was the second part? Uh, second part, sir, like uh, uh, when See, we uh, truth, talk to them, to family. Truth is something one has to go to at all costs in whichever way possible. It is the highest value. Since it is the highest value, it does not matter what route you take to reach it. Are you getting it? Not even the scripture is the highest. That's the great and beautiful thing about Vedanta. It is not even the scripture that is the highest. It is the truth that is at the highest. That is why it says Ekam Satya or Vipra Bahuda Padanti. Doesn't matter in what way you talk of it. It is the one truth that matters. And value a scripture by its power to take you to that truth. Instead of taking you to the truth, if it is taking you to the labyrinth of mentation and ideas and concepts, then that uh, scripture is not very useful. Huh? But this is a new one. That since Gita is coming from Krishna, why do you need to read even the Vedas? And probably the, 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 the dislike is mutual. Because we find that Sri Krishna is someone who has been repeatedly destroying Vedic Karmakand in the Gita. So it does not quite surprise me that uh, uh, people see a dissonance there. The second part? Uh, second part, sir, like uh, when we talk of the scriptures with our close family members, they say that uh, uh, it is not the scriptures which will help you in the... It is just a subjective matter, like you can just gain knowledge, but it will be of no use in today's world. And then it it is like only the ceremonies or the rituals are more important. Right. So how right. to deal with such kind of a people... So if, you can, answer, if you can answer uh, one question that I have, huh? probably your question will be answered. So, when I was at IIT yeah, and we were uh, studying advanced thermodynamics, there used to be one uh, 
one uh, what to call him, one pune in the mess who would tell me what is the point in reading thermodynamics you come and help me with the dishes and the vegetables that is what will take you through in life how do i how do i respond to that pune how do i respond to that pune and you know there actually was one he used to taunt all of us he would say you know you are going and attending all these things they will not be useful in life and i am the one who will tell you what to do with life look at my advanced condition look at all that i have achieved in life he used to present himself as a role model how do i respond to him that fellow is passing a verdict on advanced thermodynamics and all the thermal experience that he has had is on on the gas stove <laughs> and yet he feels he can he is empowered and qualified to comment on advanced thermodynamics do you get your answer who are these fellows who are talking of what is spirituality and to what extent it is useful what do you know of spirituality who are you to talk to me about it what's your qualification they are associated with very uh, i mean i don't want to name the organization but uh, it's a very reputed organization and they call themselves very religious and they dedicate they say that they have dedicated their life to uh, god yagya and Pune all those things that you too was a member not just a member he was the president of the delirious physicists association of india you can form any organization become its member or even its president so what and in general when you are delirious your tendency to seek security in an organization is higher see the problem is not that you do not know the response to give the problem is that you do not know yourself the problem is that you know what is right but you are just too body identified to speak the truth to your relationships that's the real problem the real Sorry, problem is that somewhere your interests and swarth is tied to these people around you that's why you cannot loudly speak the truth to them otherwise if someone is talking stupidity huh try to help them if they are amenable to listening or if they are shouting too much shut them down and if they are getting uncontrollable just walk away it's as simple as that help them shut them down or ignore and walk away what else 
but you can exercise neither of these options if something worldly is at stake comforts pleasures or money or reputation if something is at stake then you can neither shut them down nor walk away not even help them then you are left just to tolerate whatever nonsense is going on sir if i shut them down they term me as uh, a very emotionless or maybe mannerless very straightforward and do not know how to respect that's, the that's elder the right that they have they can exercise that right no they can say whatever they want to against me people keep saying whatever and they want to what do i do nothing that's the right to expression that everyone has and they can exercise their right the problem is not that they have said what they have the problem is that you have given importance to what they have said if you know something is coming from a stupid source how much importance can you give to it if you don't give importance they say you are very arrogant because you are working you are going in circles if you stop you, working you are not getting you are again saying they are saying i have already answered this they are saying thing see where you are drawing benefits from them stop taking stuff from them stop being dependent and then you will not face this problem yes hello sir um so uh, my question is um the pandavas had this something that was unifying them um like a dharma which was keeping them together and then i i see that at many moments in life we the even though we know that our karma is like it's it's a very direct path to the truth but a lot of times the path gets very convoluted convoluted like it gets like it's a labyrinth in 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 those states how do you keep yourself aligned to that dharma because you also have to protect yourself and you have to so so how how do you maintain that balance or how do you keep yourself aligned like is it a knowing is it it, it has sure. to be a non negotiable love essentially what you are asking is in one sentence how to remain with krishna even in times of difficulty full stop correct yeah the thing is the times keep a changing the situations rise and fall but within i have to live with myself and living with myself would require the presence of a sacred center how do i live without that one can live with bad air one cannot live without lungs you can live without great air but can you live without lungs 
that's what the sometimes the air is good sometimes it is bad irrespective of how stuff is outside of you inside of you there needs to be health krishna is the name of that health and it has to be non negotiable and it's a choice you see you have to make that commitment to yourself come what may certain things i cannot compromise on and and the list of those things cannot be too long ideally that list should stop at one if it can't stop at one let it be three or four things that you say you are that are very dear to you and you won't give up on them it's a choice it's it's not a method that i can provide you it's a choice one cannot uh, uh, give someone a method to fall in love can there be a method to to love someone no it's a choice that you make you allow yourself to be captivated you say i have something in front of me that's indeed very very appealing it's it's worth uh, it's worth dying for so i make a decision i make a very <clears throat> very conscious decision that this is something i'll never part ways with why because because it's beautiful and i and i love it full stop no other reason so actively making choices at every actively level. consciously and remembering your choice reveling in your choice celebrating your choice even when the conditions go bad there must still be an inner celebration that i am a winner the conditions were so bad i could have capitulated i didn't so i celebrate within and why only within throw a party if you can hmm thank you sir so sometimes what happens is like when the pioneers of the field are asked how did they do this okay they are not able to explain it so for example when uh, the fermat's last theorem was proved uh, andrew wiles was like asked how did you get to this proof and he was not able to explain so like some people say that this thing is divine okay this thing is not something human okay so i want to know what is this like in if you like ask a sports person how was he able to deliver deliver this performance so what is this divine thing is it like it is just a shutting down of the mental confusion it is just a shutting down of the noise within that's all so when you know what you are doing is important and you decide to not to care for anything else that's when your performance reaches a maxima that's all that is there to it nothing more there is no divinity or magic in this when i'm speaking to you for example i just don't remember any thought coming to me for hours must have been 5 hours uh, by now no way anything from anywhere has been able to enter me it's as simple as that i know what i'm doing is sacred how can i allow myself to be distracted by other things it's as simple as that so do we call it love you can call it love in fact you must call it love only it is love beautiful thank you <laughs>